Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Well, um, I want to add my welcome to you if you're new with us today um, or if you're on the live stream. Uh, my name's Daniel and I'm part of the team. And before we look at this Bible passage, um, can we pray together and uh, ask for God's help as we do this? Father, we thank you for your, your grace and your favour, not as an abstract principle, but in Jesus, a person. And Lord, we say we love you. We ask for your illumination that we might see Christ and know him better in all of his glory and his splendour and his humility. And all of God's people say together. Amen. Amen. Well, it's lovely to be with you. And we're looking at this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi. And he wrote this letter for for at least three reasons. The first one, he wanted to say thank you to this church for their partnership in the gospel and their financial gift that they had given to him. He's just saying, thanks. You know, it's just a polite letter. Thank you very much. He's also wanting to really strengthen them because they were facing persecution from those outside of the church. And thirdly, he's also writing to them because there had been some rifts or some difficulties in the church, particularly we're told later in chapter four, two women who had fallen out. I know, shock, horror, this thing never happens in church today, does it? But there was a falling out in the church and he's really writing to bring some healing balm to the church, to to draw them together, to bring them into into a oneness. And I mean, when we think about our society today and just our own hearts and church life and just London, we know that actually drawing people together is a huge priority, but actually is really difficult to do. The theory is great. The practical reality is really hard. And for Paul, this was the same, because just to set the scene of the church in Philippi, this was not just like a whole bunch of people who came from the same background to talk the same, look the same, sound the same. This was a radically different group of people coming together. When you go back to the early days of the church, you just got to imagine what it was like for these first few people starting the church. First, you had Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman in the fashion industry, wealthy, well-dressed, moved in sophisticated circles. And then you had a slave girl who had been trafficked, who had been used and abused by older men. And then you had a Roman soldier with his family who had been out in, in, on war, who had been used to a, a very brutal lifestyle and all the issues that that would have brought on that probably wasn't diagnosed in his day. But today we might know about some of the issues that that would bring about in a man. He said, this is, this is the church you're going to now build together. You think this is not if you're building a team from scratch, you'd not be thinking like, yeah, these, these are the guys I want in one team. But Jesus, he does something very different. And he says, this is going to be the start of this church. But you know, as well as I do, that issues in our hearts will find a way of manifesting themselves. And when you get close to somebody else, you realize, oh, there's still issues in my heart that I need to resolve. We all come with our own brokenness. So just imagine what would be some of the issues that this small launch team would have dealt with. And the letter to the Philippines here is about 10 years later from this launch moment. So think of Lydia. What were some of the issues that she would have dealt with? Some of the pride, maybe, you know, a wealthy woman who moved in sophisticated circles, who was expected to come into an unsophisticated setting with people not like her not dressed in the right fashion of the season or whatever it might be, and saying, no, this is your community now because you follow Jesus. 
or some of the trauma in this young slave girl. That trauma doesn't heal overnight. What might baggage she might have carried into the community that would have made building oneness difficult? What about the, the Roman soldier? You know, we now talk about PTSD, but in those days they didn't have any of these labels, but he would have lived with the same realities, probably living with regrets of things that he had done on behalf of the state to other human beings and living with that. A man of action who was used to getting stuff done and yet told to sit in church and pray and trust that God will do things on your behalf. What's like, and so Paul writes into this context, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any love from God, any participation, literally any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. And he says, being of full accord and one mind. He is inviting the church to this radical oneness. This, you're different. You look around the room, you think, okay, I'm different from these people. Like, is there anyone who looks like me? I'm not sure there is. We're all different from each other. And yet Paul is calling us in this to be of full accord and of one mind. Unity sounds quite functional and organisational. I don't really like the word unity because it sounds like we're just going to, on an organisational chart, yes, we are one. Actually, what Paul is talking about is something radical. It's our hearts are one with one another that we are giving ourselves to one another so that when people look at this entity that is the church, there is a family, there is a unit that looks like one. Radically different parts to it. Colours and languages and ethnicities and all is one. And he spells out what this looks like because he says in verse 3 and in verse 3, he spells out some of the nuts and bolts. Like what, what, what would this kind of community of oneness look like? He says in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves so this is the kind of community that people don't come to it thinking how what can i get from this is this helping my social status is this helping me where i'm at is this giving me what i need but when i come into this community i'm thinking i'm parking my myself at the door and i'm saying okay who can I serve? Who is more significant? How can I bless them? And you might say, well, they, I don't think they're acting. Well. No, no, no. Paul says, count them worthy as more significant than yourselves. You might think, I don't feel like it doesn't matter. Count them. It's a, it's a, I'm going to count you more significant than me. Even if I think during the week you acted kind of crummy, I'm going to count you more significant. And then he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Imagine if you were part of a community where every time you came across these people, they were always thinking about how they could help you succeed in life and do well. It's the kind of place that I would personally be drawn to. I think everyone else is trying to cut you down, work you hard, get as much money, much kind of product out of you for their money, rinse you dry. And then maybe whatever in the future. But then you come into another environment and you meet people who are saying, how can I work with my energy, my time, my words? What can I say? What can I do with my money? My, whatever I've, I've got, what can I do to serve you and your interests? What if everyone came with that same mind, not thinking, I wonder how I'm going to be helped today? You're like, is God going to speak to me? Oh, no, let's hope he does. But he's going to prophesy to me. No, who could you prophesy to? Who could you pray over? What words could you speak to somebody of life and energy that would actually change their week? So we all come like this. And Paul says, this is what it is to be, to be one. 
I want to suggest there are at least three reasons why we want this. Firstly, because deep down, I think we actually desperately want this kind of community, this kind of oneness. There are reasons why shows like Friends, like it's having its secondary resurgence and resurrection now, isn't it? Because people are like, what, what are so popular? Because it's portraying this gang of friends who are like there for each other, through thick and through thin, no matter what. At the end of the day, they're still friends. There is this oneness about this group. There is just something deeply compelling and attractive about that kind of existence. We want that, don't we? We want a family, we want, we want a gang, we want, we want to be known, we want to know others. We want, to, we want to say like, wherever I am right now, I know there's some people are like they're my people and we want and especially in London that can feel like a very lonely place sometimes I think we desperately want what Paul is talking about he's just talking to our human desire the second thing I think is that London actually really needs a community that is living what Paul talks here because London is an environment that is always like working you hard cutting you down trying to get more from you working to get stuff. I think London needs a community where you come into this place and there is a giving. There is a selfless, loving, sacrificial, I'm here to see you succeed, to see your thing grow, to see your heart blessed, to see your life flourish in Jesus. We have talked a lot over the last however many years about tolerance, haven't we? You know, there's ad nauseum, we talk about tolerance and inclusion and openness, all of which we say yes and amen to. And yet at the very time, while we're talking about this all the time, what is the culture that the secular world is acknowledging that is being produced right now in our city? It's a merciless, unforgiving cancel culture where if you make one mistake, you're out. And the ring of what is actually tolerant is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So those who are inside the acceptable circle are growing increasingly small. So we want tolerance, but we don't know how to get it. It seems increasingly hard how to get it. What London needs is a community that displays the kingdom of God, where you can be welcomed and included no matter where you come from because of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Thank you, Mpume. Paul says this in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. No disputing in church. <laughs> that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That if there is a community where there is no grumbling or disputing, you will shine. Just the bare basics and you'll shine in today's culture. And thirdly this, that if we can live what Paul is talking about in here in this passage, I think we will begin to experience, not just know in our heads, but experience something of God's presence amongst us. That the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit would dwell amongst us. We're told in Psalm 133 that a place of oneness is where God loves to dwell. What Paul is doing here in this, in this early encouragement is actually like a, 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 a Trinitarian kind of traditional saying. And, um, and Pume and I, we grew up in a Baptist church. And I, in a former life, I was actually a Baptist minister. And anyone been part of like a traditional church where the minister wore a suit and a tie and things like that? Yeah, a few nods, yeah. And you know, at the end of those services, the minister will often say the grace. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. And you say amen. And he'd go stand at the door and you'd shake his hand on the way out. That, that kind of church. And you say the grace. Christ 
Father, Spirit. This kind of Trinitarian saying that would be closed off. It's actually from 2 Corinthians 13. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to, to bless over each other. And Paul here is calling on this traditional Trinitarian formula of Christ, Father, Spirit when he calls us into this oneness. Because he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, that is the love of the Father, any participation, it's the same word, fellowship, koinonia, in the Spirit, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of one mind. Live out the oneness that you actually believe in. He's saying, if you are a Christian and you are believing in the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, who are utterly diverse beings, unique in their own way, yet so united our faith is a monotheistic faith where we say here Israel the Lord our God is one if you believe in that kind of God and you've been baptized into his name and you're living in his spirit then live it out with others around you that where there are others who are different to you actually move towards them and display your Trinitarian faith in relationship with others so that our desire is that when people come amongst us, and if you're new with us for the first time, our hope and our prayer is that you experience something of God. That you don't just hear words about him. You will hear words. We love to talk about Jesus. But you actually experience something of the nature of God amongst us. So if you look around and think, no one really looks like me around here. <laughs> This is the perfect place to display our Trinitarian faith. That the Father is different to the Son, the Son is different to the Spirit, and yet they come together and they say, our God is one. And we experience some of the, the blessing of what it is to, to live with God. So I think we, we want this for a number of reasons. The question is, how do we get it? How do we live this? Because if we're honest with ourselves for any given moment, like there's a whole lot of junk in our own hearts that makes this kind of community actually quite difficult. Self-protection, self-serving, uh, hardness of heart sometimes. We just don't want to make ourselves vulnerable. Being hurt once, don't wanna hard, I don't want to be made a fool of again. Be in those moments, like, yeah, I just... So it's a huge barrier to this kind of, and the community around us tr trying to do it, you know. Everywhere you go, like billboards, posters, you know, most organizations have got something on the wall around, you know, we want to be inclusive, our core values are, you know, inclusive, inclu inclusivity, tolerance. And yet we, we are still struggling to do it. So we have to how could we build this kind of church where you could say, even though these people are different to me, I somehow feel so connected that this is a home for me, for my heart and my soul. And I feel like this is a soil where I can flourish and actually be myself and grow in God. How do we do this? Paul doesn't do what our society does now and just like say, guys, this is what you need to do. Like our value as a church in Philippi is tolerance. So could you just be tolerant of one another? No. He actually lays a foundation of Jesus. He portrays a vision of Jesus and he gives us an insight into the psyche and to the mind of the God that we worship. And he essentially says, if your God is this God, if this God is yours and the, his mind is in your mind, then you will live this out. If your heart has been rocked and the foundations of your life have been taken from you, new foundations have been given to you in this Jesus, then something supernatural in your heart will happen and change and a glorious community will form.
We need to have a change of our heart, which is why so much of the campaigning against racism and judgmentalism and intolerance is ineffective. It's good and needed, but ultimately will be ineffective because it doesn't address the heart. It doesn't, it doesn't actually put ownership on you and me to say, no, I need to own my own sin and then come to others with Christ and his mind being in me. That I need to say, no, I come with my own sin. I'm going to give it to Jesus and then I'm going to move towards this community. This is what Paul does. It's the ownership on us. No, 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 church. When you come into this place, there's no selfish ambition or conceit. This is a place free from that. There's no ego in this place. There's no posturing. There's no desire for status. We come because we are, we are one. This can only happen through Jesus Christ. So what I want to do for the last few minutes, I say a few minutes, I don't know how many few minutes it's going to be, but I'm going to talk about Jesus. What I want to do is I want to lead us into worship. So let me just tell you a little bit about why we do preaching. We, we do preaching not just to give you information. Like information will be given. But the goal is not just like, ah, I've got some more information about Jesus. The goal of our teaching from the Bible is that worship would happen even as you sit. Even as I speak, my prayer is that as you see Jesus with more clarity, your heart would be warmed and that you would see him and know him. And as he does that, and as our hearts are changed, we'll be changed towards the community around us. So he, he gives us this hymn. In Philippians 2 and commentators pretty much universally agree now that this is really a, an early hymn that Paul was quoting that he this wasn't original to Paul but a, a hymn that they may have known that they would have sung we'd have lost the, the, the melody now but he's giving us this this hymn and it's hard I mean we don't know the verses <clears throat> I'm going to suggest there are three verses here to this hymn one Jesus as divine Jesus as God secondly Jesus as human and thirdly Jesus in his exalted state and Paul says this in verse 5 he's saying have this mind the mind of this Jesus in this hymn this is the mind he's saying that you need to have which is yours in Christ Jesus and he's always asking you to like whatever mindset you tend to happen happen like during the week and what you're normally into like let go of that mind and have this mind this mind that you see in this hymn this is to be yours and so if you're generally in a business environment, that will shape the way you view the world. A cutthroat environment. Said, no, don't take this mindset. When you come to the church community, have the mindset of Jesus Christ. You know, if you're in the education environment, it's just everything's meritocracy. You know, how intelligent are you? That's how you're rated. No, let go of that mindset and come to the mindset of Jesus Christ. If you know you're continually trying to get status and position for something, say, no, let go of that mindset and have this mind. This is the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, if you will allow yourself to be soaked in this. So firstly, we have this, Jesus as divine. Paul says this, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, not just like he put on an outfit that made, sorry, that Jesus was not just like when we saw him, like, oh, he's kind of like not God anymore when he walked on the earth. But actually, even as Jesus came to walk on the earth, he was himself God. That he was God in eternity past. And when he walked on the earth, he was God. And when he went back to the Father, he was God. He was always in the form, the very essence, God. 
his identity with God. Whenever you see him in the Gospels, you say, there's God at work. There's God talking. There's God having breakfast. There's God having a nap. He was in the very essence God. So the early Christians in Turkey said this in the Nicene Creed. He says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Jesus was God, and yet we're told this, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself. So he had this divine identity and yet he was willing not to grasp it and hold on to it, which he rightfully could have done. You know, if you've got something precious to you, whatever it might be, the temptation is to, I, I want to take, I don't know what happens to me in my life, but I want this still to go with me. Jesus, I am going to let go of this. I'm going to empty myself of what? We've got to be careful here. Not just his divine status, because he is always God in the very essence. I want to say at least four things. Firstly, he emptied himself of his immunity to, to suffering, to pain. He said, I'm going to let go of my immunity to suffering. That when he was in heaven, he had health, perfect freedom from all trials and difficulties. And wouldn't we want that? Like in a culture obsessed with well-being, the health is like number one on my, I need health. Jesus says, I have health. I have well-being. I'm going to forego that. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to grasp at it. But he willingly takes on our humanity and all of the aches and the pains and the distress that that means. He says, I'm going to let go of that. I'm going to empty myself of my immunity to suffering and suffer with you, wife, for you, so that you might be welcomed into the Godhead. Secondly, he empties himself of some of his knowledge. That when he was in heaven, he, he knew all things with the Father, planned all things, knew all things. And yet he came down to heaven and he let go of some of the knowledge. So that when Jesus was talking, he said, some things I don't actually know. Some of the timings of these events, he says, I don't know. Some of us, we love to know everything. If we don't know everything, we like to let people know that we think we know everything. Jesus actually was happily to humble himself to say, I don't know everything. This is God himself saying, I will willingly let go of some of the knowledge. Why? So that I can be with you and we can be one together. Another thing, he empties himself of his immunity to temptation. That in heaven, he was not tempted in any way. And yet he looks on us and humanity and all the sin and the darkness and the temptation that will ensue. And yet he willingly empties himself and comes and lives with us and faces temptation with us. Tempted in every way, we're told. There's moments you feel you're tempted even now through your life. He knows what it is to be tempted. And yet, we're told, did not sin in any way in his thoughts, in his mind, in his attitudes, in his ambitions, in his desires, even an inkling of his heart did not err from following the Father. And fourthly, the thing, last thing I want to suggest is that he emptied himself of the external glory that he received in heaven. Because when he was in heaven, he received the worship from the angels. He was acknowledged widely in the heavenly places as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the true beauty whom we must worship. Oh, you know, who would like that? Like, yeah, great. External glory and beauty. To be recognized as that as well. And Jesus says, but I'm going to leave that and I'm going to be born 
Not, he wasn't even born in Jerusalem, like the place where things happened. He was born in a nowhere town to a peasant, probably teenage girl, raised with no money. And Isaiah 53 tells us he had no form or majesty that we should recognize as someone special. You and I would walk past him in the street and not think anything about this man. And he walked knowing that there was glory and recognition in the heavens and people did not see him as who he truly was. And why does he do all that? For you and for me. He walks in humility that he might form us together as one. So Jesus is God and yet does not grasp at that, but comes to be with us so that we might be one. How might that change us as a community? And then secondly, we have this in the second verse. We have Jesus in his humanity. It says, and being found in human form, we're told, he humbled himself. So Jesus came and he took on the fullness of humanity, everything that it is to be us. All the aches and the pains and the indignities and the tiredness and all the moments you feel overwhelmed. Jesus took on all of our humanity. And just imagine this for a moment. If you were God in your blazing moral purity, untouched by evil or darkness or sin or anything like that, and you looked at a world that was full of darkness, sin, indignity, injustice, this this kind of cesspool of yucky attitudes and thoughts, do you think... Jesus willingly walks into our world and takes on everything that is part of what it is to live as a human. Dane Orland, who wrote a wonderful book called Gentle and Lowly, and I highly recommend it. You probably heard me talking about this too much, but anyway, you should buy the book as soon as you're finished here and read it. It will do your soul good. He says this, we sometimes think about Jesus naturally. We think about Jesus kind of touching our humanity like a young boy might touch a slug for the first time. You know, like you kind of like, you see the boy, you just imagine him like kind of wanting to touch it, but then like cringing at the same time, like quickly retracting and thinking, yuck, you know, like cringing at the thought, but like kind of intrigued, but kind of like yuck, yuck at the same time. We could kind of think like Jesus, you know, coming into our humanity, but kind of being really uncomfortable, like, oh, Father, do I have to touch these yucky people? I can't wait till I get back to heaven again. Like, why do I have to live here? Like all these, t- well, they're going to the toilet. Look how they go to the toilet. Oh, yuck, it's like gross and all these things and all these indignities of just being a human being and you think Jesus is like oh I'll put 33 years father and that's it that's all I can put up with and I'm coming straight back to you and you you know you we imagine like potentially just like and he says no 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 Jesus held nothing back he was drawn to us he took on the fullness of our humanity so that he could walk in everything that we walk through so that we could be one he let go of his preferences He entered into the muck of our existence because he wants us to come and know him, connect with each other. It's amazing. And we're told that he walks into the darkest of our experiences. He says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus doesn't just say, look, guys, I'm going to go with you so far, but, you know, that last the last mile of your life, the death bit, that's too much for me because, by the way, I'm Jesus, the Son of God, and like, I, just, I belong in heaven. So, no, Jesus says, I'm going to walk with you through your life and into the scary parts of your death. 
I'm going to walk with you all the way. I'm going to hold your hand all the way. I'm going into the full experience of your humanity. He will not let you go because he desires that we be one together. And we find this really hard, I would suggest. I think we find it hard that Jesus, our God, would come low. I think we find it easier to have a God who is high and majestic and lifted up. We sing big, crazy, grant on the drums kind of songs like, Jesus, you are glorious, you're majestic, you're high, you're up there, you're different from us. We find it easier that Jesus is majestic and we find it harder that he is low in the dirt, in our darkness with us. Because what does it mean about me if Jesus, God, has to come that low to save me? What does it say about who I am? What does it say about my helplessness if Jesus has to go that low into the dirt for me? And we're told that he doesn't just go into the death with us. He goes to even death on a cross. The lowest of all deaths. In the Jewish mind, this was unthinkable. Not only that God would be a human, not only that he would die, but that he would die on a cross and I think we're, all, we're always trying to give Jesus a bit more, like, we're trying to dignify things the whole time. We're trying to keep him separate from our existence, I think. And you see it, I think, in Christian art, very often is not very helpful for our theology. Because just think with me for a moment. If you think of, like, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, like a painting. You've seen a painting of the, the cross of Jesus. What do you normally imagine? I'll tell you what I imagine. Just see if like, I normally imagine some Instagram worthy kind of sunset in the background to start with. You're like a really nice setting because it's Jesus. He's special. So he needs a nice setting. And it's beautiful. There's like a nice calm aroma about the photo. You know, it's the kind of photo you think the artist is trying to make you go, ah, oh, you know, feel calm and nice. And then it's kind of middle distance. There's a nice hill. It's kind of like maybe a little breeze in the background. It's like, oh, it's calm. And then there's the three crosses. And they're kind of like, they're nice crosses, aren't they? They look nice. Like, oh, it's beautiful. Like nice. They're really like symmetrical. And, lovely. and then what do you think about Jesus' cross in the middle? What happens to Jesus' cross? Almost every time. His cross is what? It's slightly higher, isn't it? Because we couldn't bear the idea that Jesus, our God, would be crucified with us. We can't bear the idea that actually he would come amongst us and take on the fullness of our humanity. We can't bear the idea that he would be crucified with a common thief on both sides. And if you didn't know Jesus, you would walk past and not know that he was special. We keep trying to just stay away from the dirt and the sin of our life, Jesus. What would it mean? But Jesus says, please, I have come to the depths. I want to come and take on the fullness of who you are. All the dark places, the feelings, the emotions, the, the things that go on in your mind that no one knows about even to this moment. He comes for all of that and his blood is spilled in the dirt for you. He lets everything go for us. He comes low. So we have his body taken on the ground, in the bloodied, soiled dirt of Jerusalem. So that where do we find our God? We find him at our feet. For us. Taken away, buried. The only thing that's left of Jesus is blood in the soil of Jerusalem. This is our Jesus. Alec Motier, he says this. This was the mind of Christ. He looked at himself and at his father and then at us, at you and me. 
and for obedience sake and for sinner's sake, he held nothing back. He comes low, lower and lower and lower and lower and lower for you and me. And if this is the mind of Christ, how would we enter a community? If this is the Jesus that I worship, why would I hold on to the little preferences of my life? If he's done this for me, if he's come from a much higher place than me and goes to a much lower place than me, how can I hold on to offence? How can I hold on to my preferences? How can I hold on to my interests? If Jesus looked to me and says, I'm holding nothing back, everything is going to be for you. If I can look to the heavens now, like in this song, Yet Not I says... There is no more for heaven now to give. Like, look, there's nothing more that heaven gives. What, for me? Why would I withhold anything from the person to my left or to my right? This is the soil in which a kind of community of oneness that will be birthed. A community that I think we all want. It's a humbling place. Because it means, okay, there are some things that I'm going to leave at the door when I come be part of this place. There are some things that are not going to be mine because I'm thinking about someone else. And every time we're tempted to hold on, to think of me, I think, well, what about Jesus? I'm reminded of him and his blood left in the dust of Jerusalem, his body being carted away. But this is not the end. Because if we would follow this Jesus and if we would let go of our own life and follow Christ if we would follow him in his humility and in his death if we would go there with Jesus we're told in verse 9 of it in the third verse that there is an exaltation because Paul says that therefore because of this cross of Christ therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth so that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ he is Lord to the praise and the glory of God the Father because of this obedience there is a high exaltation. Paul is making up words here. He says he is going to be, what does he say, highly exalted. That's one word. It's literally Paul saying he's going to be hyper exalted, super exalted, ultra exalted. He went to the depths, so the Father says you're going now to the heights. I'm going to exalt you at my right hand so that you will be known in glory one day, that your glory will not be hidden forever but it will be fully revealed and everyone will say you are Lord and Saviour and all need will bow to this Jesus and all tongues will confess willingly or not Jesus Christ he is the Lord hallelujah and this is the journey you think well how, you're asking me this, this will be you I'm pretending to be you just for imagining you might, no one might not be thinking this but if you were you're, you're telling me like let go of your my preferences It's not like, you know, how to win a crowd and influence people. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, everyone else is telling you, you can be whatever you want to be, whatever's in your heart, we're going to make sure it happens. You just work hard enough. You know, all of that nonsense. Let me just say this. You can't be anything you want to be. 
He's saying there's a community here where you have to let go of preferences to be, you know, like for this oneness. It's called a narrow path. But what if we lived it? What if we actually did that? And you walked amongst the people who they were, you walked up and you found like in their demeanor, in their face, in their conversation, they were thinking about you the whole time. Like what? How, what, what, kind of, what kind of community would ensue from that place? But there is reward. Because when you do that, when you say, okay, I may do tentatively, and that's all that repentance is, that's all the turning from self is to say, okay, I'm going to let go of my preference, and I'm going to come and follow Christ. What we find on the other end of this death-like experience to what I want is actually a hyper-exaltation, that one day you will be raised to life with Jesus, and everything will be made right, and you'll be found with him in glory. There is an exaltation for everyone who will take this path of crucifixion. And so all we're going to do now as we close is we're going to lift up our hearts and our minds and our thoughts. Not our words, sadly. The band are going to do the words for us. But we're going to baptise our hearts and minds again in Christ Jesus, in this exalted one who is right now at the right hand of the Father.